0: As planned, the band of hunters rises and moves stealthily in various directions toward the river, down the river toward the unsuspecting herd. Within the hour, they have all taken up their positions surrounding the herd, each as close as he can get without being detected by the natural nearsighted beasts. The mammoths, having drunk their fill from the river and feeling drowsy in the midday heat, have earlier moved into the shade provided by the low trees along the river. Torches are lit. The drumming begins. Fifteen screaming hunters leap up and race toward their prey, closing in on the herd and driving it toward the nearby ravine. The animals, terrified by the noise, the fire, and the missiles that rain down on them, charge ahead into the ravine, tumbling thunderously over one another, bellowing in pain and fear, legs broken, helpless. The men descend into the melee, and with their powerfully built thrusting spears, Deliver the coup de gras to mammoth after mammoth, young and old, until within an hour all the animals are dead. Their warm carcass lie ready for butchering. By the end of the afternoon, choice pieces of mammoth meat have been sliced away from the bones of a few of the dead beasts, and a grand feast begins. All in the group, some 70 people in all, young and old, fill their bellies with meat roasted over sizzling fires while the hunters retell the high drama of the chase, the adrenaline-filled thrusting and leaping of the kill, and the spouting of warm blood. Later that night, stomachs full and hearts content, the group will sleep. Tomorrow, they will busy themselves hacking their bountiful harvest into smaller packets of meat that can be stored in pits dug for that purpose. Stores that will see them through yet another windswept freezing winter. The larger bones of the mammoths will be used to rebuild their bone houses. Others will feed the fires that warm them in the cold Little will go to waste. The prayers made so earnestly to the owner of the animals have been answered, and the people will survive another year in this place. What's wrong with that story? The village built of mammoth bone houses in the promontory above, the two small rivers, the Raz and the Rozava, was discovered by archaeologists in 1966 and called Mezirich. The site is still under study but the remains of some 150 mammoths were found in the vicinity. Adult mammoths weighed in at about three tons of which more than a ton was pure animal protein. The first archaeologists that This site assumed that the Paleolithic people of Meserich, with their specialized mammoth hunting culture, lived in this same place for as much as an entire generation. So plentiful were herds of mammoths and other large prey animals in the neighborhood of the rivers and other river valleys in this large region, they assumed either the hunters were not as adept, or the herds were less plentiful, and those ice age groups needed to move more often, leaving behind less impressive ruins for the archaeologists to discover. Today, one can see dioramas of such hunting villages with mammoth bone houses in many museums, including the American Museum of Natural History in New York, Chicago's Field Museum, the Hot Springs Museum in South Dakota, and Le Thot in the Dordogne region of France. The first such house excavated has been reconstructed in the Museum of Paleontology in Kiev, Ukraine. In hunting scenes, such as the story above and the dioramas, There's little sense that women are present except as passive consumers, that they might have assisted in the butchering, if not the hunting itself, was not considered until recently. But more to the point, we will see later in the course of this book that such hunts, in which huge numbers of these enormous beasts are slaughtered, probably never happened. Such hunts appear now to be myth-making in the part of paleoanthropological community. The Place A narrow rocky canyon in the foothills east of the Grand Tetons in present-day Wyoming. The time, 11,000 years ago. Seven men stride into the mouth of a canyon and descend into the shade, it is midsummer, hot, and the men wear only skins around their loins. They carry long, thrusting spears tipped with finely chipped points of shirt, some longer than a man's hand. The hunters are an advanced party headed north, exploring new country. Where they have come from, farther to the south, the game has grown sparse. No longer do the great elephantine mammoths still roam in large herds and with the rapid drying of the world in the south, the vast herds of giant bison have all moved north. It has been some times now since these men have enjoyed a successful hunt and the women and children they left on a promontory a few miles back have been complaining for days The canyon narrows as it deepens, and an even narrower side canyon opens to the north, a slight trickle of water reflecting the sun. The men slow down, chatter quietly among themselves, and then turn up the side canyon. They have seen the droppings of mountain sheep and horses alongside the water. Some 15 minutes later, They reach a place where the canyon turns west, toward the high mountains. Cautious now, have seen the whitening bones of a few bison and sheep. They follow the canyon west and are brought up short by the sight of a huge bear lying on the side below the canyon wall, gnawing at the carcass of what appears to be a freshly killed bighorn ram. In figure One one prehistoric hunters in America battling a giant bear, in a brief of whis- in a brief whispered conference, the men decide to scare the bear away from its prey. They approach silently, bare feet on rock, ducking behind boulders moving forward, now within thirty yards of the bear, and this distinctive, pungent, musky smell. They leap out as one, screaming, rushing at the creature. Enraged, the bear rears up and roars. His huge head with its wide mouth rises some 14 feet. He towers over the attacking band of hunters. A huge paw at the end of a long and slender arm slashes the lead hunter across the chest, sending him hurtling backward onto the rocks. The other arm reaches for another attacker who jams his spear at the bear's stomach and the other hunters leap and duck, fainting, thrusting, screaming. What's wrong with that story? This advance party is known today as Clovis Man. From the exquisitely made spear points that that were first discovered near the town of Clovis, New Mexico, in the 1930s, Clovis man arrived in North America, it seemed, 11,500 years ago, and his points and other weapons and tools have since been found sporadically throughout the lower 48 states. Until recently, it was almost universally believed that Clovis man was the first entrant into the New World the greatest and fastest-moving hunter to appear anywhere on Earth. Within less than a millennium, proliferating Clovis hunters had managed to reach the southernmost tip of South America and along the way had sent some 30-odd genera, not species, but genera, of large mammals to oblivion. The absolute epitome of this Clovis myth, for that is what it has turned out to be, is embodied in this story, and in the accompanying illustration, so ferocious was Clovis man, that without much thought to their safety, a handful of them would supposedly have attacked an animal we call the great short-faced bear, known to science as Arctodos simus. On all fours this bear stood as high as the shoulder of a moose and its long limbs probably gave it the capability of short bursts of horse-like speed. It was almost surely the continent's ultimate carnivore standing at the very pinnacle of the food chain and capable of bringing down any prey except perhaps an adult mammoth that any group of humans armed with only spears would ever attack such a creature is of course ludicrous. They would instead have exercised all their wiles to stay out of the way of such a profoundly dangerous killer. Yet, the very reverse image leaped into the imaginations of people who had convinced themselves that these supposed first Americans were pre- Preternaturally gifted hunters, capable of feats now known only form the special effects departments of Hollywood. How does such a notion come about? There's no known evidence of any kind that humans took on these huge bears, but we have modern illustrations of such activity, not for pulp magazines and penny dreadfuls, but by respected scientific illustrators and published in such places as National Geographic. The roots of this fantasy can be traced at least as far back as the mid-19th century and a popular French sculptor Emmanuel Frémiet, who produced a life-sized sculpture in 1850 of a gladiator fighting a bear. But after Darwin's book was published and prehistory was discovered, Fremiet's bear-fighting gladiator, became a Stone Age man engaged in mortal combat with a bear, and the two were intertwined from then on. Across the Atlantic, artist Charles Knight emerged as the premier painter of extinct animals in the first half of the 20th century. In addition to illustrating numerous books, both technical and popular, he decorated several of the major United States natural history museums with murals of prehistoric beasts, from the dinosaurs to the giant ice age mammals. Since his time, Americans have tended to see the lost worlds of the planet largely through his eyes, and most popular illustrators of prehistory have followed his lead. By the turn of the 20th century, illustrators, including Knight, were augmenting the bear versus man theme until it became a largely unquestioned assumption in many minds that Clovis hunters, in amazingly romantic and dramatic encounters, took on even the great short-faced bear. It goes without saying that women... Played no role in any of these depictions, except perhaps to stand off in the distance looking desperately alarmed, or in a few instances, fleeing. King Kong and a screaming fey Ray were not far behind. How is it possible that the largely femaleless world characterized by our three stories could have arisen? It is a world of male hunters and huge game animals. A world where women, children, and old people are barely present. By inference, women bore children, tended them, and gathered a few edible roots and tubers, the extent of their contribution to the battle for survival. It is as if, twenty thousand years from now, archaeologists were to discover the first few sites dating back to the twenty first century and all of them, it turns out, are locker rooms in the remains of those arenas where the National Football League held its contests. The archaeologists would find that that what were clearly helmets and the padding of gladiators of some sort, as well as a few decade bits of cloth, some of which appeared to be designed to shield their reproductive organs, and others, bearing numbers that may have represented the order in which the gladiators were to fight or perhaps to be sacrificed. Of course, it would be an all-male affair, as has been our general take on life in the Ice Age, or what is more properly thought of as the Pleistocene. Where did this testosterone-drenched, macho, men-only world come from?